Scripture reading this morning comes from James, the book of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over Judgment. May God bless the reading of His Word. I want to tell you a story about William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army. And the story is summarized by a pastor in Queensland. It says, William Booth grew up with a heart for the hurting. And some of you may be familiar with Booth. While he was still an apprentice at a pawn shop in Nottingham, England, he spent his spare time and money on the poor. And William led a group of young men into the slums to evangelize on the streets and in any homes that would open up to them. And there soon came to be this ragtag group of converts. People came to know Christ. Few of these new believers in Christ could read, and so they shied away from attending church. So William decided to take them to his own church, the Broad Street Chapel. The service had just begun when they arrived. William swung the door open and beckoned his group to the front where some of the rented pews were empty. He watched as hundreds of pairs of eyes focused on the disheveled people filing in. Their clothes were ragged, dirty and torn, and a pungent odor followed them. One woman a fishmonger's wife, was still wearing her leather apron with blood and fish scales smeared all over it. As she plumped herself down on a velvet cushioned pew, others in the same pew pulled out their handkerchiefs to cover their noses as they slid as far up the other end as possible. During the service, there were no major incidents, just a few smelly children climbing on their mothers, and one man with an intellectual disability, yelling out every now and then. After the meeting, no one came near the visitors. The minister asked to speak to William, 
and took him into his office. The deacons were already there. <clears throat> the minister, the Reverend Dunn, set the tone. We all understand you have a passion for preaching on the streets, but it is not appropriate to bring the riffraff off the streets and seat them beside us in our pews, rented pews nonetheless. Here, here, interjected the church secretary. It's going to take some time to get the smell out of the building. And I think all the drapes will have to be washed. That's quite an expense just to have a few drunkards listen to a sermon. Reverend Dunn could see William look crushed and offered a compromise. Do you think you could bring them in the back door and have them sit behind the curtain? They couldn't see the service, but they could hear it. That would solve the problem. Except for the smell, someone else chimed in. When he could stand it no more, William stood and chose his last words carefully. You have made your wishes very plain. I'm very sorry you are troubled by new converts. I doubt you will see them again anyway. It is very difficult to convince them that they would be welcome in a proper church. And I see they were right and I was wrong. Good day to you, sirs. This experience followed by many more similar catastrophes led to William and Catherine Booth's expulsion by the Methodists and 14 years of poverty before founding the Salvation Army. Now, I don't want to be hard on Methodists because this has happened in all churches of every denomination. So, wow, I mean, you you hear that story, you're thinking, is that a fictional story? I mean, it actually happened in a church? And you think to yourself, man, aren't you glad... We're not like those people that quarantined the poor off to the side and gave the preferred seats to those who are more wealthy. I mean, aren't you happy that we care more about souls than seat cushions? I mean, aren't you glad we're beyond that? It's nice to know that we don't struggle with showing favoritism based on whether someone is rich or poor. Well, except for that conversation I had a few years ago when I was telling someone about you know, the direction we're going as a church and they told me that, you know, Ron, you need to be careful in the direction you lead the church because you don't want to make this certain person uncomfortable or uh, you don't want them to disagree with you because that would mean they will not leave money to the church. And this certain person could leave a lot of money to the church. But you know, that was probably just a one-time incident. Probably never happened before or since then. At least not in this church. I have another story uh, written by Stephen Haynes. And some of you may remember this. Uh, You've heard about, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, the sit-ins. Well, there's another movement that you may be aware of. It's called the kneel-ins. It happened during the same time in the 1960s. He writes, They took place by the hundreds at churches in large cities and small towns across the South. And half a century later, they continued to reverberate through the congregations and communities that witnessed them. These church testings began in August 1960. And continued through the spring of 1965. In dozens of cities and towns from Savannah to New Orleans 
Alexandria to Houston, St. Augustine to Memphis. Visitors, usually in groups of two to six, targeted prominent churches of major denominations. Within a few days of the initial visits in Atlanta, the local media coined the term kneel-in to describe these events. And the term stuck, not because kneeling was a regular feature of the visits, which it wasn't, but because attempts to break the ecclesiastical color line were viewed as part of a larger campaign of sit-ins, sleep-ins, and wait-ins that was was sweeping the South at the time. So reaction to these kneel-ins varied in these different churches. Some, in some cases, the African Americans who presented themselves for worship were warmly embraced by ushers, introduced to pastors, and invited to stay for coffee. Parishioners shared hymn books and communion rails as they went out of their way to make the visitors feel welcome. These church visits became spectacles of embrace that dramatized the breaking down of racial walls in the body of Christ. In other cases, church members demonstrated little desire to welcome visitors of color, but did not exclude them. Wary ushers swallowed hard and reluctantly seated black visitors and their white compatriots. Parishioners temporarily made room for worshipers they hoped would never return. They seemed to understand that as long as they tolerated black visitors, their church had passed the moral test and would not be bothered in the future. Predictably, however, many of the African Americans who arrived at the doors of white churches were rebuffed. Their paths to entrances were blocked or they were dragged out of seats that taken, they had taken unnoticed and escorted away from the church property by security guards. Some were even arrested and carted off to jail. I say, aren't you glad that we're not like those folks? And we let anyone come in to our sanctuary to worship the Lord who made us all. I mean, aren't you glad we're just beyond that? That we don't show partiality based on race? Well, there was that one church conference a few decades ago where some of our members decided to redirect African Americans to other churches instead of welcoming them into our fellowship. But I'm sure that was just a lapse of judgment at that one moment, and we don't think like that today. What do you think? You may say, Ron, why bring up the pain? You know, why bring up the failure of the church? And the reason is, I want you to see that whether you are like Booth in 19th century England, or whether you are in 20th century America, or as we'll see in the book of James, whether you're in the first century Roman Empire, we all struggle in showing partiality. That's our nature. We, tend, we have a tendency to show partiality. We all struggle with valuing our, showing our values, holding values based on man's values rather than God's values. We all struggle with this. And this is the issue James is addressing. He's trying to help Christians align their lives to the values of God. And he tells us, In verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no 
partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Because you see, there's two value systems. There's man's and there's God's. And man's system determines a person's value based on what is seen. And so you look at someone's appearance. And so you show favoritism to someone based on how they look. Are they attractive? You know, what are they wearing? Or what color skin do they have? We tend to show favoritism toward appearance. That's man's value system. And we discriminate against maybe those who are different than we are. Man values people based on achievement. You have a certain level of education. You maintain a certain place in society, a certain job. Then you're important, you're valuable. Here, have this best seat here in the house. And we discriminate those who don't have those qualifications. We also, as, as men, as men and women, our value system, apart from God, we value people based on Affluence. You know, we tend to show favoritism and preference toward the wealthy and discriminate against the poor. This is man's value system. Whereas God's system determines a person's value based on how we are made. And God's word tells us that we are all made in the image of God. The Bible also teaches us that every person we encounter, every person we encounter either has Christ dwelling within them or Christ died for them. In other words, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 3.28. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for all are one. In Christ Jesus. You know, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter saw God working among those who were not Jewish, this is what he was forced to say. He just couldn't deny it. Verse 34 in chapter 10 of Acts. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And then the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.11, For God shows no partiality. Because God does not value people based on what they look like, what they can achieve, how much money they have or don't have. God values people because He made us in His image. And He loves us. He sent His Son for us, for all of us. And we all are equal at the foot of the cross. And so James is saying that if you possess this new life that comes in Christ... If you possess this new life in Christ, if you hold the faith, he says, in our Lord Jesus Christ, then your love will not discriminate. And if it does, that does not jive with a Christ follower. (laughs) You can't put them together. If you have faith in Jesus, your love will not discriminate. You will value what God values. You will love what God loves. And then James gives an illustration of what he's saying here in verses 2 through 4. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, similar to Booth, the story about Booth, and when he brought in those who didn't have as much as others, but then a poor man comes in, shabby, with shabby clothing. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and says, Hey, sit here in a good place, or hey, come sit by me. But you say to the poor man, Hey, go stand over there. 
Well, why don't you just sit here, kind of out of the way? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What's interesting here is this is first century Christianity. And this is an issue. And James is basically telling us that showing favoritism to the wealthy and powerful was a temptation for the early church. So the early church wasn't immune to prejudice and partiality. And neither are we. We all have these blinders on. And you've got to recognize this. We all have these blinders on or blind spots that we don't see necessarily. And we need the Lord to challenge us in those areas and reveal those blind spots so that we can have a better vision of how He sees the world and what He values. And so the question this morning as we even talk about partiality, are you even willing to admit that you may have blinders on? That you may show partiality. Are you even willing to admit that? And ask God, God, would you show me? Because I want to expand my vision. And I want to value what you value. Well, James goes on to give several reasons why we should not show partiality. And he, and he uh, kind, of, kind of spins off of this illustration. He gives us several reasons why we should not show partiality and treat the wealthy better than we treat the poor. The first one he says kind of goes back to verse 1. He says, if we make distinctions between people based on man's value rather than God's, then we're just not living out the gospel. I mean, clearly. If you're holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should not show partiality. So, what he's saying is, if you understand the gospel, if you understand the love of God and who God is, then you won't do that. So if you are doing that, what does that say? Well, you don't... There's something you don't get. You don't understand. You're, you're still clinging to the old way of life and not embracing the new. So rather than embracing the gospel, living it out towards people, he says we tend to judge with evil thoughts, which means that we're making distinctions based on some criteria other than God's. You know, we're judging who's important, and who's important and who's not important based on our own criteria rather than Seeing people as God sees them. The second reason is found in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? You see this all throughout Scripture. That God sees the heart. And He values faith. And all throughout the Scripture, we see that God cares for the poor. And that the poor, even though they may lack material possessions, they are often the ones who are rich in faith. Therefore, we should not think of those who lack material things as less than those who have an abundance of material things. The third reason is found in verse 6. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? You know, in the first century, and even today, it's the rich that use the court system with the expensive legal fees and loopholes 
to take advantage of those who have less resources. And it was the same in James's day. So why show, he's saying, why should you show favoritism to the, the very people who oppress you? <laughs> These are the people who are dragging you into court. When in God's economy, the poor man may be the rich one, and the rich man may be the poor one. And the fourth reason is found in verse 7. He says, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You know, the rich and powerful were the ones who ridiculed the idea of faith in Jesus, whereas the poor tended to be the ones that were more in tune with their dependence and their need for God. It's not saying the rich can't come to faith in Christ. What did, what did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? You know, once the disciples said, you know, well, who can, who can enter the kingdom? He said, it is hard. It is hard for those who are uh, kind of dependent on their material wealth for their identity to enter the kingdom. But nothing's impossible with God. But the fact is, for any of us to come to God, we must be poor. We must recognize that we have a need that we cannot fulfill. That only God, by His grace through Christ, can bring us to Himself. So the rich and powerful were the ones who ridiculed the idea of faith in Jesus. Maybe you've heard people say, you know, Christianity is a crutch. That's more than that. We're laid out. You're dead in sin, my friend. And we need more than a crutch. I mean, we're not even hobbling along. We need a new life. We need to be born again. And that's what Christ has done. We are dead in sin, but God has made us alive in Christ. We are completely and utterly dependent on the grace of God for new life and eternal life. You have to be poor to to agree with that statement. You have to realize your poverty and your need for the richness of Christ in order to be and experience that new life. The fifth reason we should, we should not show partiality is found in verses 8-13. through 13. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because somebody might be saying, Well, you know, Ron, I'm giving this preferred seat to my wealthy friend because I'm trying to love my neighbor as myself. And you say, Well, that sounds good. But how does that square with how you're treating this man over here? Or this woman over here? Looks to me like you're drawing a distinction and you're more welcoming to this type of person than you are that type of person. And then James goes on to say, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit murder, I mean if you, do, if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are, are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So do you catch what he's saying? He's saying that if you show partiality, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't square. I mean, you're trying to put a a square peg in a round hole. It's just not happening. You can't do that. You can't make distinction that way. And he says you're, you're in sin and you're guilty of breaking 
God's law. Let me ask you this. How many links must you break in order to break a chain? One. How many laws do you need to break to be considered a criminal? One. So James is saying, and driving home the reality that if you show partiality, you are a lawbreaker. Now, yes, there are differing consequences for breaking different laws. Whether it's God's law or man's law, we know that there are different consequences. But they're all connected, he's saying. God's laws are not just random, arbitrary laws. They are connected together and they're meant to produce uh, the abundant life. They're meant to produce shalom. They're meant to produce fullness of life. They're all connected. And he says, if you break one, you are guilty. And the reality of this, as it sits on you, it should be a wake-up call. Because what it shows us is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Because if we've broken just one law, we have become a lawbreaker. Which that makes us impoverished. It puts us in debt. It, It puts us in a place of great need. And so no matter how much money you have, how many awards you've won, how many people you manage how many degrees you have, we are all in equal need of the grace of God. Now think about that. If you and I are in equal need of the grace of God, just like everyone else, how should that affect how we treat people? Then why in the world would we draw distinction? Because whether you are a millionaire or you have no money, You're in equal need of the grace of God. Whether you're extremely educated, multiple degrees, or you didn't finish high school, you still need the grace of God. I mean, equally. And so why would we fall into this idea of judging and distinguishing between people based on man's value system when God says, all people are created in my image and their value is not determined by how they look, what they've achieved, how much money they have, but rather their value is rooted in how they're made and the fact that God loves them and sent His Son for them. And so the more we realize this, the easier it will, it will be to love people regardless of how different they are from us because we begin to see people as God sees them because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And so James is just hammering home this idea. He wants us as followers of Jesus to live out our faith. And what that means is we should not show partiality. So no matter how someone looks or what they wear, how much money they have or don't have, how good or bad they smell, how educated they may be, we must love them And invite them into the family of God. So, whether they're clothed in Ralph Lauren. Or clothed in rags. Our desire should be to help them become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Let us pray. Father, that's our desire. Lord, we confess that we have blinders. We don't even see those spots, those blind spots that we are um, guilty of. And we need your Holy Spirit.
to reveal those to us. Lord, help us to see people like you see them. Help us to love people like you love them. And no matter who they are, what they look like, how much education, how much money, Lord, help us to extend grace to them that they may come to know you. Well, thank you for sending your son for all of us. Help us to see the greatness of your grace. That we may be conduits of your love to those around us. May our love not discriminate. Help us to understand the gospel more today than we have in the past. That we may live out our faith in a way that is in alignment with your values. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.